Well, Peter has established truths, many magnificent truths about the salvation of his audience, the common salvation that these Christians have. And uh, these Christians are living where, by the way? Asia Minor. Very good. Where they're living, Stacy. That was the question. And they're not from Asia Minor. Why are they in Asia Minor? Yeah, kicked out of their homes because... There you go. They're enduring persecution. So they've ended up in Asia Minor. And he's writing to them uh, the first 12 verses of this letter, just describing their salvation in the most glorious way, uh, talking about how God the Father in eternity past chose them to be saved and sanctified through the person and work of Jesus Christ by the application of the Spirit of God. Just an amazing thing. And we see so many uh, things here in the first 12 verses. That's why we spent so much time on it before we've gotten to this point, because we're getting into the instructions that Peter has for us. Peter, of course, as the first pope, you know that, right? He wore a big hat and a dress and everything. No, uh, so, yeah, no, not a pope. But Peter, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he has these instructions that he gives to the church, very detailed instructions about Christian living that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that are for our encouragement, for our admonition, for God's glory and honor as we live this life. Uh, they're instructions for these persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, but they're equally instructions for us today. And we begin to hear these instructions by recognizing three basic dispositions that Peter lays out uh, in verse 13. But before we get to there, let's just remind ourselves, when you see, like in verse 13, when you see a therefore, what do you have to ask yourself? Yeah, there you go. What's it there for? So uh, this statement that's coming from Peter is in light of everything that has come before, in light of your salvation, which Peter has said is rooted in God's sovereign electing power, right? That you are chosen by God, that He has caused you to be born again. He has chosen you. Also, that this salvation has been applied to you by the Holy Spirit. You've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's worked in your life in a personal way, set you apart through the gospel in salvation. And I love verse 5, this salvation is being guarded through faith by God's power. <laughs> the salvation that's been given to you because God set you apart through His power is being protected and guarded by God. I mean, how encouraging is that for displaced people groups enduring various types of persecution? So many great things that were said about our salvation in those first 12 verses. And so Peter says, therefore, in light of all of that, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how are we to face this life as Christians? Well, I'm going to draw out these three themes that we have right here in verse 13. I'm missing my black marker. Who took the black marker? Well, you're going to have to we're going to have to interrogate the children and see where the black marker went. Um, but what are the, uh, the three themes? Can you see them there in verse 13? Okay. And specifically, what needs to be prepared? 
Okay, so prepared minds. What else? Okay, yeah, yours might say self-controlled or um, sober-minded or sober-spirited. And what's the third thing? It's actually the first two aren't imperatives. They're just saying, okay, this is how you are to be, and then we're given a command. What are we to do? What's the command? Okay, so to set or fix your hope. All right, so prepared minds, sober spirits, and fixed. That's better. Fixed hopes. That's uh, what I want us to look at first this evening. Uh, Does anyone have an interesting translation for preparing your minds for action? The first thing that uh, we're looking at. Anyone have anything about loins? (laughs) Pork or otherwise? Uh, Yeah. Gird up your loins for action is really literally what it says, that Peter is calling them to gird up their loins in their thinking and in their minds. Now, what, what does that mean, to gird up your loins? I'm assuming none of you did that this, this week yet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's definitely a part of battle, to be girded. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So, a long, flowing robe or whatever you know, they would wear that would hinder their running, could be tied up, maybe whatever, around and through, however you want to do it, and tucked in, and that would allow them more mobility, right, to have your loins girded up in the way that you're dressed. So as we consider that, and and maybe you could use a modern phrase like roll up your sleeves, right? That's something that I do a lot, roll up my sleeves, okay? Um, For what purpose do our minds need to be prepared in this way? Because he's focusing on the mind here, girding up the loins of your mind or preparing your minds for action. What's the purpose that our minds need to be prepared in this life? Yeah. Um, remember that big, long definition that, or not really definition, it was a summary of the first two verses God has chosen us for obedience to Jesus Christ through the application of His work in the Spirit to live as aliens or exiles in this place, right? Here we are foreign to this world, formerly of the world, but now foreign to the world. And so as we go out and interact in this world, our minds better be ready, shouldn't they? Yes, they should. (laughs) Good job, class. Yes. Uh, We better be sharp in our minds. We better be prepared because what are we going to deal with out there in the world? That's right. All kinds of stuff, right? Um, So our minds need to be prepared for the world that we're living in, the world that we're encountering each and every day. So Peter is encouraging these Christians who are being persecuted to be perceptive As they go out and they interact with their culture, they're not to see things like the world sees things. They're not to see things the way they used to see things. But they're to look around and to see and to perceive with mature spiritual minds what's going on, to understand by what they've been taught what's really going on in the world out there, to be sharp in their minds, to think about the truths they've been taught through God's revelation. And this is very similar to Paul's 
encouragement to the Ephesians. Keep your finger here, but turn back to Ephesians 6. This is the great uh, whole armor of God passage. And look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 11. Yeah, we'll start in verse 10. Why not? The closing of this letter, Paul writes to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm." Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you're using the New American Standard, you'll see in verse 14, instead of saying having fastened on the belt of truth, what does it say? New American Standard? Girded. Same idea. Same idea as Peter. So it's a part of our daily spiritual battle as we're not just seeing things as I don't know, flesh and blood. We're not just seeing things as material, but we're understanding as spiritual people given spiritual truth that we are dealing with spiritual warfare, aren't we? Behind every conversation, there's something spiritual going on. C.S. Lewis said, you've never met a mere mortal. We're dealing with spiritual things all the time. So your minds need to be prepared. You need to gird up the loins of your mind, Peter says, for action. Prepare your minds for action. And we are able to do this as Christians because what has happened to our minds in becoming Christians? Okay, good. So that's a daily thing. That's a continual thing. What happened in an instant, though? Yeah, you're generated. You're born again. You were given a new nature. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, old things have passed away, all things have become new. And earlier in this chapter, Peter says that we've been born again. How are you able to prepare your minds for action? Because you've been given the mind of Christ, Philippians 2. The mind of Christ, have this mind in you, that which is yours in Christ. We have that through our salvation, therefore we can prepare our minds because we've been born again. And this is contrasted with what we used to have. What did we have before we were born again, intelligence-wise? Ignorance. Look at verse 14. (laughs) The end of verse 14, he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's how our old self is described by Scripture. Now you're just brilliant, right? We have a bunch of doctorates, (laughs) a bunch of uh, philosophers walking through. I'm surprised your heads fit through the doorway. No, no. Here we are, not as, you know, we're the smartest people in the world, but what do we have that the world doesn't have? Spiritual insight. Spiritual insight. Because, again, all through the New Testament, you have the dichotomy, spirit and flesh, spirit and flesh. And when we were of the flesh, we were ignorant of spiritual truth. And now that we've been born again, we have access to the mind of Christ, which changes everything. Okay? Uh, Second one, sober spirits. Uh, It says in the ESV, being sober-minded, it might say in yours, being self-controlled. 
This means to, to remain humbly alert. Humbly alert. That's the idea behind being sober. Humbly alert of spiritual activity. Now, what's interesting is uh, the like New American Standard, it's a sober in spirit. The phrase in spirit isn't in there. That's an insertion uh, by the translation committee. Um, in fact, I believe all it says is being sober. That's, uh, I believe, all the Greek text says is to be sober. And that's used in the New Testament three times by Paul, three times by Peter. There's an encouragement to Christians to be sober people. What keeps us from sobriety? There's an obvious answer, and then there's more, you know, you have to think about it answers. What's the obvious answer? Yeah, okay, there you go. Good. What keeps us from sobriety? Well, things that make you drunk. They'll take you out of sobriety, right? But, uh, and that's obviously an aspect of all of this. We are to actually physically be sober people. Do not get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. But if we were to look at this in a more spiritual sense, how, how can we be sober in spirit? Apart from physical drunkenness, how can we be sober? What would get in the way of us? In what ways do those intoxicate us in a spiritual sense? Yeah. Good, yeah. So, it's really a focus on things of the world, isn't it? Giving your mind back over to your ignorance that you had before Christ, the ignorance of the flesh. And that's not just uh, filth and smut on shows, even though that's certainly a part of it, but it's greed, isn't it? It's discontentment. It's pursuit of worldly things without seeing the spiritual benefit, but resorting back to our old mindset Returning to our vomit, so to speak. What? I'll go ahead, Joseph. Did you have a? Yes. The Absolutely. Yeah. Just l- lack of love. Um, absolutely. Pride and arrogance. So, as we think about this call, as to to be sober-minded. Um, why is it important that we fight to be sober-minded? Now, we've kind of answered this with the prepared minds. It's very similar. But can we flesh that out a little bit more? I mean, why is it important for Christians in the culture, in the midst of persecution? Remember, that's the context here. To be sober-minded or sober in spirit. Melise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would prevent us from speaking truth into situations, um, to encouraging one another, even as we see the day approaching. It would, it would totally block us from that which we've been called to do in the church and in the community. Um, and I also think of, too, how Christians are to be sharp-minded people. Christians aren't supposed to be dull people. We're supposed to be sharp-minded people. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying, again, we're not saying PhD, big head that can't fit into a room, okay? We're not saying that. But we're to be 
in the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, right? Don't you hear that in the book of Proverbs over and over again? Get knowledge, get understanding. We're not to be flimsy, emotional people who are tossed to and fro. We are called to stand firm and to be found on the rock of Christ, not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, not to be tossed to and fro by the winds of culture or anything that can pull on your heartstrings emotionally and take you here, take you there. But we are to be sober-minded and not to be lured away by external things, things of the flesh, right? That's a, that's a challenge. Melissa. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it's interesting. The word sober is found in the New Testament a lot with alertness, the idea of alertness. Now, how would you answer the question if someone asked you, uh, you know, Melissa was just talking about it for yourself individually, why it's important to be alert. But if someone asked you, why is it important for Christians to be alert about what's going on in the world? Because, what, I mean, you die perhaps, and then you go be with Christ. Or while you're living, Jesus returns and you win. I mean, what's there to be alert about? Why don't you just go out and live and you know you're going to win, right? So why should Christians care about being alert, not just with ourselves, but with the world around us? What's the importance there? Why do we even care? Yeah, uh, because what, what happens as time goes on and as we get closer to the Lord's return, more and more of these things, right? Yeah, and it's not that we're being alert so we can figure out when He's coming. It's that we're being alert because as we get closer to Him coming, there's more stuff to be on the alert about because these are birth pangs that people... Coming up as false teachers, you've got apostasy happening, and there's a lot of that happening today. You have a lot of these things going on that we do well to pay attention to, not so we can mark on the calendar when we think Jesus is returning, but because the reality is we're dealing with a lot of false teaching and a lot of things that can creep into our lives, into our homes, into our churches. Lizzie. Sounds great. (laughs) Joseph. Yeah, in Ephesians 6, it talks about the schemes of the devil. Yeah, Yeah. right. Being discerning, yes. Okay, well, um, let's talk about the third thing, which is having our hopes fixed. Fixing our hope on Christ, and more specifically, on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This means that we're totally banking on Jesus' return. (laughs) As Christians, we are fully placing our hope. If you've ever played poker, you know what it means to go all in, right? To shove all the chips. That's what we're doing. I mean, everything we got is banking on this. And this isn't the wishful thinking type of hope. Anytime we talk about hope in the Bible, I feel like I just got to make this clear because we use that word hope so cheaply. We use it here and there. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Whatever. That's not what this is. There's certainty in Christian hope because there was certainty in the resurrection there's certainty in the second coming. 
These things go together. Because we serve a risen Savior, because our Lord is alive, He is returning. So it's not a wishful thinking, it is a certain reality. And it's hopeful because He's bringing us grace. Notice that, that the grace that will be brought to you or announced to you, proclaimed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 2, it talks about how we are to abide in Him so that when He comes back, we won't, do you know what it says? So that you won't blank at His coming. Shrink back or be ashamed. Yeah, different translations. But we are to abide in Christ, to walk with God, to know God, to be confirmed over and over again by the Spirit of God that we are His that we may not shrink back at His coming, but that we're looking forward to that, that we have all of our hope shoved into the middle of the table on the return of Christ. Not that we're afraid of it, but that we are so joyful thinking about it. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And this is that final salvation that Peter's been talking about. He's mentioned the second coming of Christ maybe three or four times now already in the letter. For Peter, salvation wasn't just fill out the prayer card and turn it in. Oh, look, he got saved because he put his name on the prayer card, and he checked, I believe today. He checked the box. Salvation so much more than that to Peter, a work of God that is just so magnificent, so wonderful, so life-changing, that all of your hope and joy and peace rests on this, that he came once, and he rose from the dead, and he's coming back. And you will appear with Him, and you will have this grace revealed to you at the end. And that's your salvation. It's this whole big deal. It's a beautiful, amazing thing. Yeah, it's, it's so much more than everyone with their head bowed and some guy raised his hand in the back, you know, because um, he was manipulated by the electric guitar. It's not that. This is your life. Jesus becomes your life and salvation. It's so wonderful, beautiful, we hold on to it because it's the grace of God. So, as we think of salvation in those terms, it's very understandable that Peter would now go into these instructions for living, because if our salvation is that big and that marvelous, that, that whole concept better be brought to bear on our daily lives, right? <laughs> this idea that Jesus is returning, if we believe Jesus is coming back to judge if we believe Jesus is coming back to reveal grace to His people, if we believe Jesus is coming back because He is who He said He was, that better affect us deep in deep ways. So now Peter's getting into these instructions, and they're so sweet for us because we know the Lord and we want to live for Him. We want to honor Him because of what He has done. Okay, thoughts or questions before we get into 14 to 16? Never want to move on if there's any question. guess there's not. guess we can move on. Okay. So, verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, having the disposition that Peter was uh, just talking to us, having prepared minds, sober spirits, and fixed hopes, we are to consider now the priority of holiness in our lives. That's Peter's jumping right into this, the priority of holiness. And he calls us in verse 14, obedient children. That's your title. You're an obedient child. That's who you are. Now you're called to be your identity. And this is how the Christian faith works. The Christian faith doesn't say, do this so you can become. The Christian faith says, you are, now do this. 
okay? You've been given your identity as a child of God, and now you are to live as a child of God. Our identity is totally wrapped up in what God has called us. What are some things that God calls us in the New Testament? Here we have obedient children. What are some other things? Heirs, good. Okay, good. Sons. Good. Yep. We're his sheep. We hear his voice. There's another good word that starts with an S. It has to do with the word holy. It means holy ones. Saints. Saints. We're called saints, right? We're called members of God's household. We're called members of the body of Christ. We're given all these great titles. That's our identity. And now our identity isn't to be handled hypocritically. Our identity isn't to be shunned. Our identity is to be embraced, and we are to live what we are. Because you are, go be. Isn't that good news? <laughs> because you are, go and be. Now, what's interesting about the, the verbiage here, it's, in the ESV it says, as obedient children. Both the word obedient and the word children are nouns in the Greek. And this is constructed to where children is the noun and obedient is the adjective. But really, it should be uh, read because... Um, obedience is in the genitive, which is possessive. It should be read, children of obedience, as children of obedience. Does anybody have that translation? I, don't, I didn't check to see if any translations phrased it that way. 14, as children of obedience. That's really the way it's, it should read. Yeah, children of obedience is a, is a better term, because we've been born again to a life of obedience to our Father. Obeying God as believers in Christ. Yes, go ahead. Well, no, I'm saying that's what the Greek says. Yeah, so the English should more rightly say children of obedience, but yeah. But even obedient children, I mean, it's the same idea, um, that that is who we are, children who are called to obey, just like we call our earthly children to obey. Um, the Lord has called us His children, and we are to obey. And we are to worship Him and obey Him by what does verse 14 says, say? What's our call here? Yes, so we are to reject the former lusts that were ours in ignorance. Um, we already discussed how the former life be, is characterized by ignorance, and it's ignorance of what? What were we ignorant of? Good. Spiritual truth. And this is 1 Corinthians 2. Um, if you can remember that passage, we are spiritual people. The Spirit of God searches the mind of God. He reveals these things to us. He illumines Scripture for us. And so we're able to understand because we have the Spirit of God. But in our former lives of ignorance, we were ignorant because we did not have the Spirit of God. We, we did not have the Holy Spirit instructing us or even urging us to read Scripture. What desire did we have to earnestly read Scripture for the glory of God before, <laughs> right? None. But as we are born again, as we are caused to be born again to a living hope, the Spirit of God who regenerates us, washes us, renews us, he also leads us into instruction, scriptural instruction, and He teaches us because He searches the mind of God. So Peter is saying, don't go back to your ignorance, that ignorance in which you possessed all these passions, all these lusts, all these things that you now know 
are against the very nature of God. They're sinful. Don't do this. And that makes us aliens in the world. That makes us exiles. Because God doesn't deal with the world on the world's terms. Have you noticed that? God deals with the world on His terms, not on the world's terms. And so here we are in the world now belonging to God, being possessed by God, and we are to see things as God has told us to see them. We're to see those things that we once loved, not as things that are good for us, not as things that honor God, not as expressions of loving neighbor. We're to see them as what they really are, ignorant lusts. We're to look at those things and see them as just passions rooted in ignorance, passions that are, are fully devised by the flesh. We're to reject those things because we have God's terms and we belong to God. And holiness is now not just our identity, but also our goal. We've been called saints. We've been called obedient children. That's our identity. But now it's also our goal. Because we are, we are to be. We're to live it out. And we're to reject the old chains of sin that had us in bondage. We, we loved our chains when we had them. We just loved the chains of sin. We loved the shackles. And we're not to go back as people have been set free and say, ooh, do those still fit? <laughs> okay. We're to see them for what they are. Because when you're ignorant that they're shackles, you love them. But when you can see them for what they are, you need to speak truth with a prepared mind and a sober spirit with your hope fixed on the return of Christ. And to give yourself over to the Lord day by day in worship as He works in you. He's stirring this in you, and you're to worship Him day in, day out. Thoughts on that before we keep going? Okay. So worship, does anybody, and this is like ultra bonus points. I say this a lot, but I'm saying it again. Ultra bonus points, if you can tell me. The definition of worship that was given to you in the worship sermon series. Worship is what? Ultra, super, duper, double brownie, triple star, bonus points. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to remember to say it from memory. So anybody have their notes? What worship is? Okay. Worship is conformity to God's standard of holiness with our whole being. And then I have in accordance with His revelation. Okay. <laughs> well done. Worship is conformity to God's standard of holiness with our whole being in accordance with His revelation. So we're not conforming to our former lusts, we're conforming to God's standard of holiness. It's a worship decision each time. It's not just, do I gossip, do I enter into this conversation of gossip, or do I not? It's a worship choice. It's not just, do I, you know, do I treat my wife poorly because I'm grumpy today? It's a worship choice. Everything is a worship decision. <laughs> 
we can squeak in some marriage counseling before you go home tonight. <laughs> <laughs> But it really is a 24-7, 365 thing, isn't it? Worship is. 24-7, 365. It's every area of life because where does God's Word not touch? It touches everything. And so if we're looking to conform to God's standard in accordance with His revelation, that means the applications are limitless. Um, we are to seek to worship God in every area of life. And verses 15 and 16 here put the focus on our entire manner of life. It says again in verse 14, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but here's what we're supposed to do. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The focus is on our entire manner of life. Your translation might even have that phrase, your whole manner of life, and all your conduct, everything that we do. And this holiness, this goal, this identity we've been given, and now our goal that we're seeking is rooted in what? Where does this idea of holiness come from? What's it tied to? Is it just a made-up-on-the-spot definition? Where does it come from? Yes. Isaiah 6, his great, heaven, his great throne room vision. What are the angels proclaiming? The thrice holy God, right? So God's nature and character is so separate from the world because He's holy. He's without sin. There's no sin touching any part of God's nature or character. And so here Peter is saying, as He who called you is holy, verse 15, or like the Holy One who called you, yours might say. This is all in relation to God's holiness. This is all in relation to God's character, God's nature. Our purpose for living is to reflect the nature of God because we are His children. His holiness is the standard. His holiness is the basis for all of our morality. Why do we say some things are right or some things are wrong? Because God is the one who has determined these things based on His nature. It's not that God is, you know, God's whatever He wants to be, and then He just says, arbitrarily, that's right, that's wrong. God exists eternally as the Holy One, the Pure One, and that's the basis for all right and all wrong. That's the basis for all morality. And you see Peter here in verse 16 is quoting Leviticus. This is a statement that shows up four times in Leviticus, and Peter's quoting the 19... Chapter 19, verse 2 statement, it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That was Israel's basis for living for God, His nature. The Christian, your basis for living for God is God's nature, the church. Our basis for living for God and for being a moral people, being a people of good behavior and conduct. It's all in accordance with the nature of God. He is the definition of these things. It's not arbitrary, but it's all rooted in who God is. Our great salvation is to be lived out in really profound sanctification as we consider worshiping God by conforming ourselves to His holiness. That's what worship is, and that's a very profound thing. It's a great salvation, and it's a great sanctification. 
because He's working us, molding us, shaping us into the image of His Son. What verse is that, Dean? Romans? Good. And the one you taught on recently, isn't it, too? Romans 8, 29? Yeah. He's predestined us not just for heaven, but for the in-between <laughs> to be conformed to the image of His Son. He has saved us, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We know this. It's by grace you've been saved, by faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He's called us into this life to live out what kind of works, does it say in verse 10 of Ephesians 2? That He? That's it. Yes. They're not just works that He tells us to do off the cuff. He established them beforehand. So He has not just saved you for heaven or to be alive at the second coming, but for everything in between, walking in those good works from now until the moment your faith is turned to sight. So as Peter's talking about sanctification, we're going to see in the next two chapters this word behavior or conduct come up six times, six times in two chapters. Peter's going to talk a lot about our behavior because what are we to do in this life? We are to live out, walk out those good works God has prepared before us and worship to Him. We're worshiping God because we've been enabled through our salvation to live for Him. Okay? Thoughts or questions on that before we close with a few other passages? Yes, that's right. Whether you eat or drink. Yeah, Romans 10, 30, 31. Yeah. Yeah, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, it's for God's glory. Melissa. Yeah. Um, and, but, yeah, so, so it's, it's a, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a great job. Yes. Yeah, well, the, Christ, the, the Christian life is complicated. Are we comfortable saying that? <laughs> you better be if you've lived any of it, okay? The Christian life is complicated. It is. And so, yeah, well, that's, that's the last part of my lesson is answering the question, how are you able to do such a thing? So maybe that'll get to the heart of it. Be holy. You, will, you shall be holy for I am holy, verse 16. How on earth are you able to do that? Well, Let's consider these things. Um, first thing, this is a work of God that we cooperate in. Okay? Our sanctification, the holiness that comes about in our life is a work of God, isn't it? I mean, are you at the end of your life going to look back and say, boy, I really did a good job making myself holy? <laughs> Remember Romans 8.29, He is conforming us to the image of His Son. We're, there is a, definitely a passive aspect in all of this where He's doing the work. The Holy One has to make us holy, and He is the Holy One. Yet we do cooperate in it, don't we? 
you're not just jumping up into the air and letting the wind carry you wherever. That's not how the Christian life works. (laughs) You're not hands off and then God's just doing everything else. There's an aspect in which you are cooperating with God. That's why we have imperatives. That's why it says, fix your hope. That's a command to you to do that. Okay. So it's a work of God, but you're not just like floating. Okay. <laughs> you've been given a mind that works. You've been given spiritual gifts. You've been given a call in this life. And so our cooperation looks like intentional living and having an intentional disposition and a desire for God as we pursue Him. Have any of you read the book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges? Great book. Anything Jerry Bridges writes is great. Melissa and I have a few authors that are like grandfathers to us, and Jerry Bridges is one of them. You read it's just like this sweet grandpa who just says what you need to hear, and he does such a good job. Um, But we are to pursue holiness in this life with a desire for the holy God. When you have a desire for God, that changes the way you approach these things. If you approach this life as, okay, God saved me, now the rest is up to me, now i got to make myself holy, and here's my stuff to do, 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 do. and I'm just going to do these things so that way I can be holy, where's the pursuit of God in that? Where's the love for your Father in that? It is. It absolutely is. And it doesn't work. (laughs) Then you fail over and over and over again, and you're just all beat up because you made a law, and well, we... We're not very good at keeping laws. Then you have on the other side an idea, and this is like a hyper-grace view. I just talked to a family couple that was visiting that Richfield church for the first time this past Sunday. Real sweet couple. I told them I had to stop talking to them or I was going to bag them up and drag them back up here with me. So, um, but they were involved for a while in a hyper-grace church. And there's actually a movement called Grace Walk. I've got this book... Um, by a guy named Steve McVeigh, put that on your do not read list, uh, <laughs> called Grace Walk, and he teaches Christians can't sin anymore. Isn't that great? Isn't that good news? <laughs> can't sin. <laughs> yeah, no, it's over. All right. But now think about that. Think of the implications of this. If you truly believed you couldn't sin anymore, what is this life going to look like? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? So you have these two ditches, and there's a lot of stuff in between, but you see the extremes here. Cooperating with God doesn't look like either one of those things. Cooperating with God who is in you, willing and working, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, in submission to the God who is in you, looks something like pursuing God 24-7, 365, (laughs) because He's in you 24-7, 365. He's working in you. He doesn't take a break from working in you. And so we're responding to that in daily life, in every area of daily life, we're seeing it. We're being led by the Spirit, and we are seeking to be conformed to His standard of holiness as He's revealed it to us. Okay, so let's, let's grab some passages. I want to give you three, three phrases related to some passages as we consider how we're able to do this. Who will go to Romans 12 and read several verses in Romans 12 for us? Dean. Okay, someone for Colossians 4, 2. Colossians 4, verse 2. Lizzie. Someone for Hebrews 13, verses 18 and 19. Stacy, Hebrews 13, 18 and 19. 
And then someone to get 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. 1 Corinthians 13, who can get that one for us? 1 Corinthians 13, Ellie? Good, thank you. Okay, so how are we to do this? First thing I want to say is daily devotion. Daily devotion. And I'll be a really good Southern Baptist, and all these are going to be alliterated for you so you can remember them, okay? Romans 12. Who was taking that one? That was uh, Dean? Okay. We're going to look at 1 and 2, and then also 9 through 21. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then also verses 9 to 21. All right. So, this is set before us as Christians. Not that we would be perfect in doing all these things, because you won't be. But this is the Christian life. This is set before us as God's revelation to us for how we are to live. And I hope you could see these things as Dean, or hear them as Dean was reading them. The pursuit of God in life, and all of life through these things. That we are following after God who has saved us. He's called us holy, and we're seeking to please Him in this life. Daily devotion. Okay, secondly, another alliteration for you. Powerful prayer. We'll look at uh, both Colossians and Hebrews. So, Lizzie, you want to read Colossians 4 too? New Testament. All right. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So this is a case for uh, praying with your eyes open. <laughs> Be watchful in prayer. Really bad Bible joke, uh, you know. So... Be watchful in prayer, being alert with thanksgiving. There's something about having a prayer life, again, in pursuit of God who is in us, working, speaking to the one who saved you, who loves you, who's in you, who's with you, speaking to Him in this life. There's something powerful about that that helps you to be watchful. In Hebrews 13, 18 and 19. Right, so we don't know who the us and who the I is in the book of Hebrews, kind of interesting. It says, pray for us, and we don't know who it is. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. But the person writing says, not only should they be praying for themselves, like in the book of Colossians, but pray for us. Pray for us. We have a good conscience, and we want to please God in all things, but pray for us. So we are to not only pray for ourselves and to be alert and watchful as we pray for our own lives, but to lift each other up before the throne. Bring each other to the throne of grace to intercede for one another, to pray for one another. There is power in prayer. God has designed it that way. This is one of God's means of building us up and accomplishing His ends is prayer. Okay, and then thirdly, nope, wrong one. This one is a little bit of a stretch, the alliteration, I'm sorry. 
But I had alliterations here, and I had to do alliteration here. So loving living, loving living. 1 Corinthians 13, whoever had that one, let's look at the, uh, I think that was you, Ellie, wasn't it? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 7, can you do that one? Right. So, the idea of we're worshiping God in all areas of life. We have to view life that way. That's a worldview thing. It's a paradigm thing. You have to see all of life as being worship decisions for God, for His praise and glory. Prayer, this thing that God has given us that's mystical in a lot of ways, we don't understand all of it, but He's given it to us as a commission and as a privilege prayer. It's powerful. And then, what is our motivation to be in all this? It has to be love. Now, this is specifically talking about the church in 1 Corinthians 13. You'll hear this passage read at weddings, of course. It's not talking about husbands and wives, but it certainly applies, okay? And it's talking about the church, but it also applies to the community. It applies to how we interact with our neighbors, our family, all non-believers, as well as believers. Love has to be our motivation. That has to be it. We have to forsake any selfish ambition when we, rec- when we see it, when God brings it up. We have, to, we have to recognize that and forsake it for the sake of love. That's the mind of Christ that we've been given, is to count others as more important than ourselves, to love one another. Because if, if we go about this life seeking to be holy as He is holy, without love, how far are you going to make it? You've got nothing got nothing. Love. And we're able to do it because we've received the greatest love. Heaven came down and glory filled our souls. We have love in us, and so we are able then to have this motive, love. Simple, but so tough. (laughs) Very simple, but so hard. Okay? Final thoughts or questions. We're at 8.05. Dean. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so when we see that God is jealous um, in, I believe only in the Old Testament, and I believe less than five times, maybe just two or three, um, it's in relationship to His people Israel. Your God is a jealous God. He's consuming fire. Another one. Wow. Consuming fire. Well, He is jealous for what is His. He has a right jealousy. So when God is jealous for Israel, it's akin to, I mean, if you look at Ezekiel 16, where it talks about God finding the baby on the side of the road, wallowing in its blood, and He saves the baby, and the baby grows up, and He puts, uh, you know, His ring on, on her, and He cares for her as His own bride, and then she goes out and plays the harlot, and you know, this whole imagery. God is the groom, and um, the, Israel is the bride. God is jealous with a loving, relational jealousy, just like a good husband or a good wife is jealous for his or her spouse. So, same idea there. Good. I love Ezekiel 16. It's a good one. Is that it? Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, Dean, since you asked the last question, you want to close us in prayer? (laughs) That's That's a new rule.